live because of our knowledge of his love for us and we are compelled by our love for him. And the world doesn't get that at all. They don't know our real identity. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom Pennington continues his current series with part seven of The Christian's DNA. If you're a believer, God himself has adopted you into his family, a spiritual adoption. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but now we're alive in Christ. We are members of a new spiritual family, and we have new spiritual DNA. With those privileges, however, it means believers must expect to stand firm in the face of rejection and hatred, things promised in Scripture for all who desire to live faithfully in an unbelieving world that has no understanding of or belief in the gospel. How should you prepare for rejection, hatred, and antagonism? Well, as Tom Pennington will show from Scripture today, you can take heart in Christ and look to Him as your source of comfort. Tom opens God's Word right now, and we join him here on The Word Unleashed. I'm fascinated by the fact that the British monarchy has lasted for 1,200 years. In fact, for the last 900 years, the next king or queen of England has been installed in the same place, Westminster Abbey. And it's fascinating to note that Queen Elizabeth reigned for 70 years, the longest of any English monarch in those 1,200 years. Think about what it's like today to be Charles. As the oldest son of Queen Elizabeth, Prince Charles was born to be king. But today he's 73, and throughout his entire life, he has known that one day he would become the king of England. He was always destined to be king, but what he would eventually become wasn't in fact manifest until his mother died. He has become now what he spent his whole life anticipating. As I thought about that, I couldn't help but think of the analogy to us as believers. This, this same thing is true of every genuine believer. From the moment of our new birth, we have been children of the king. And that relationship has come, just as it did for Charles, with a certain destiny. But none of us are yet what we will eventually become. What we were meant to be from the moment of our spiritual birth will only be fully realized when our Lord returns. That's the heart of what John the Apostle wants us to, to discover in the passage that we come to this morning as we return after our break for the summer to our verse-by-verse -verse study of John's first letter. Again, turn with me to 1 John. Now, it's been several months since we've studied this wonderful book together, so let me briefly review and bring us back into this, this section of Scripture. Some of you were new and perhaps weren't here when we were studying 1 John, so let me give you some context. First of all, the, the theme of this book, 1 John, is the tests of eternal life. The tests of eternal life. This is clear in chapter 5 
verse 13, John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Think about that. Christ our Lord designed this book, the Spirit inspired it, and John the Apostle wrote it in order to help you gain a personal assurance of your salvation. Now, this letter is not structured like Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles are very, very logically ordered and structured and flow from beginning to end in a clear flow. John's not like that. But there are two images that help us understand his structure. I've compared it to a, the musical themes in a symphony. You know, when a, when a composer writes a symphony, he returns again and again to the same theme. He repeats that theme, but each time he does so, he does so with a distinct variation. That's like the book of 1 John. Another image that will help you understand its structure is to think in terms of a spiral staircase. And hanging down the center of that spiral staircase are three great themes, three great tests of eternal life. And as the letter unfolds, it's as if John walks around that spiral staircase examining the same three tests, but looking at them from different vantage points, giving us a different insight. Now, there are three movements to this symphony that is 1 John, or we could say there are three cycles around the spiral staircase that John takes. We have finished the first movement of the first cycle. Let me just remind you that the book begins, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, with a prologue, and then you have cycle 1, the first set of tests of eternal life. It begins in chapter 1, verse 5, and runs to chapter 2, verse 27. There are three tests. There is the test of obedience to Jesus Christ and his word. There is the test of love for God and his people. And the third test is the test of faith in the biblical Jesus and in the biblical gospel. So we've looked at that first cycle. We've worked our way through that entirely. We are now studying the second cycle or the second movement, the, the second cycle begins in chapter 2, verse 28, and runs through chapter 4, verse 6. John begins this second movement, or second cycle, by returning to the test of obedience that began the first movement as well. So here's an overview of chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10, the paragraph we find ourselves in. In this paragraph, we learn that our relationship to sin and righteousness or we could say our obedience to Christ and his word shows, first of all, our real birth, our real birth. Are we still dead in sin as we were born, or have we in fact experienced the new birth, have we been born of God? Our obedience also shows our real master. Are we still a slave of self and sin, or have we in fact become a slave of Christ? And the new birth, or I'm sorry, our obedience shows our real father, our real father. Are we still a child of the devil as all people are born into this world, or are we now children of God? So this morning, I want us to return to our study of the first section, and that is our relationship to sin and righteousness, or our obedience to Christ and his word, shows our real birth. It shows 
whether we are still dead in sin or whether we've truly been born of God. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 28 and read down through chapter 3, verse 3. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, the key expression in this text comes at the end of verse 29, and that is we're talking about identifying those who are born of God. If I were to summarize what we just read together, I would put it like this. A true Christian has been born of God and will therefore be like his father in character and conduct. Like father, like child. If we've been born of God, we have his spiritual DNA. And if we have his DNA, then our character and our conduct will reflect that of our father. Now, in this passage, John gives us several crucial insights into what it means to be born of God. That's what we're looking at together. First of all, we discovered in our study previously that if we have truly been born of God, if we've experienced what Jesus calls the new birth, then the reality of that new birth will be certified eventually at Jesus' resurrection. That's the theme of verse 28 of chapter 2. Now, little children, abide in him. That is, continue to believe in him. Continue to believe the biblical gospel. That's the theme of the previous paragraph. Abide in him like that so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. All true believers will have confidence when he comes, but false believers, those who are not truly his, will shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So whether or not we've experienced the new birth, we'll be certified eventually when he comes. Either we will have confidence because we, have a, we continue to abide in him, to believe in the biblical Jesus, the biblical gospel, or we will shrink away from him in shame and be shown never to have experienced the new birth. Secondly, we learned that the new birth is confirmed now by our actions. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes. You can look at your actions today. Chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Do you practice righteousness? Is your life marked not by sin as a pattern, but by righteousness as a pattern? Thirdly, we learned that the new birth is followed by our adoption Regeneration, or as Jesus calls it, being born again, the new birth, is followed by our adoption. Now, we looked at this in detail. Let me just remind you, we first considered the reason for our adoption. Why is it that God would adopt us? Verse 1 of chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us 
that we would be called the children of God. The reason for our adoption is there in that it's because of the love the Father has bestowed on us. In eternity past, he decided to love us. He decided to adopt us as his own children. Ephesians chapter 1, in love, he chose us to adoption. Then we examine the reality of our adoption. Verse 1 goes on to say, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Called by whom? Called by God himself. God calls us his children. That's the reality. Listen, if you're a Christian, you once were a child of the devil. According to John 8, every unbeliever is a child of the devil. That's what Jesus said. At that time, your only relationship to the God of the universe was as your creator, your sustainer, your rightful king, and eventually your judge. That was your only relationship to him. But in Christ, that same God has adopted you. Just as was, was true with Jesus, God is now your Abba Father. You really are his son. You really are his daughter. In fact, look at verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And God doesn't just call us that, but such we are. It's the reality. Now today, I want us first of all to finish verse 1 in this whole issue of adoption and see we've seen the reason for our adoption, the reality of our adoption. Let's consider briefly one result of our adoption. One result of our adoption. The end of verse 1. For this reason, the world does not know us. For this reason, the world does not know us. By the way, for this reason is a little unclear. It, it could refer to the previous phrase, in which case, this is what John is saying, because we are the children of God, the world does not know us. Or it could be referring to the last phrase in verse 1, in which case John would be saying this, because the world didn't know Jesus, the world doesn't know us. Could be either one of those, but frankly it doesn't really matter because either way the point is essentially the same. Look at verse 1 again, let me read it. For this reason, because of our new relationship to the Father and to his Son, the world does not know us. The world here is the Greek word cosmos. As you know, it's used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. But here, it has to refer to all unbelievers, to all unregenerate sinners, those who have not been born again, those who have not experienced the new birth, those who love and are controlled by Satan's evil world system. So here's what John is saying. Those who don't know God as Father and who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, don't know us either. Now, obviously, they do know certain things about us, but they don't really know us. In fact, let me just, let me point out a couple of ways that they don't really know us. First of all, they don't really know the people who matter most to us. Think about this. 
John 17, 3, Jesus is praying and he says to the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you're a Christian, that's what matters most to you. It's those relationships with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, those are the relationships that matter most to you in the universe. And the people who are not in Christ, they don't get that. They don't really know you. They don't understand that we love each other. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't get that. They don't know that. They don't understand that. Secondly, they don't know and can't understand the truths that are most important to us. You see, there are things in our lives, there are bedrock truths that motivate us, that drive us. They don't get it. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, those who are according to the flesh, that's all unbelievers, set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's everything in the world around us, things connected to this natural life. But those who are according to the Spirit, that's every believer, that's all of us. Those who are according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What's that? That's what's between the covers of that book you hold in your hand. It's the things the Spirit has revealed, the things that matter to God. That's what's important to us. This book is filled with truth about God and us and the world and everything in it. And these truths are profoundly important to us, but the people around us who aren't in Christ don't get it. They don't know us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The truths that matter the most to you, they don't know them. They don't understand them. They don't get it. Thirdly, they don't know and can't understand our deepest and most heartfelt motivations. You know, they see us do what we do. Maybe, maybe you try to reach out to a neighbor or a coworker. You try to express love to them and care for them. And they think that we're thinking like they think. In other words, it's like, well, there must be an ulterior motive. They must be trying to get ahead. What are they trying to accomplish? They don't understand that we are driven by a deeper motive than ourselves and our own advancement. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls us. That is, my knowledge of his love for me compels me and controls me to do what I do so that I no longer live for myself, but for him who died and rose again on my behalf. 1 Peter 1, 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him. In other words, we live because of our knowledge of his love for us, and we are compelled by our love for him, and the world doesn't get that at all. Fourthly, they don't know our real identity. This is really John's main point here in verse 1. The world doesn't know that we are, in fact, the adopted and beloved children of God. They just don't know our real identity. And therefore, they don't understand us. They don't get us. We understand this in one sense. I mean, think about it at just a normal human level. How often have you found yourself saying about somebody in your life, you know, I just don't understand them. I, I just don't get them. Why do you say that? It's because they are so different from you. Their, their motives, their, what they love, what they hate, 
they're, the character that marks them is so different that you, you just don't even know them. You don't recognize them because it doesn't resonate with who you are. That's exactly what John is saying is true for us. The world, they don't know us. They don't understand. It shouldn't surprise us that the world, that is all those who don't know God, don't really know us. And the reason it shouldn't surprise us is look at the end of verse 1. Because it did not know him. The verb tense, by the way, in Greek points to a definite event in the past. This is talking about Jesus when he came in the incarnation. They did not know him. Go back to John, John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, that is, the things he made, his own things, and those who were his own did not receive him. They didn't know him. Turn over to John 15. During the upper room discourse, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his, his crucifixion and ultimately his leaving them to return to heaven. And notice what he says in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. They're going to display that hatred by throwing you out of the synagogues. They're even going to kill you and say they're doing service to God. Why? Verse 3, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. One result of our adoption is that the world doesn't know us just as it didn't know our Lord. Now, let me make this very personal. If you're here this morning and your spouse is not a Christian, he or she doesn't get you and never really will. Why? Well, you can have a normal human relationship with them. You can love them, care for them, and you should. But they're never going to get you. They're never going to really understand you. They're never really going to know you because they don't know who you really are. They don't know who you really love. They don't know the truths that matter most to you. They don't know what motivates you, what drives you. All the things that are the most important to you in the world, they don't know and will never get. If your parents or your children aren't believers, they don't really know you. Your unbelieving extended family, your co-workers, your fellow students, they don't understand you. They just don't get you. And let me encourage you, the same was absolutely true for our Lord. Go back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus is ministering in Capernaum. Verse 21 says, when his own people heard what was going on, his ministry, and he didn't even have time to eat a meal, his own people here is his own kinsmen, specifically his brothers. Jesus, four brothers. He had four brothers. They're named in Mark's gospel. He had four brothers. His four brothers didn't believe in him, neither did his sisters, until after the resurrection. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, The Christian's DNA. Tom will have part eight for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, there may be someone listening, seeking to be faithful to Christ, 
but who is now experiencing some hatred and misunderstanding from some folks around them. What are some practical ways that they can stand firm? You know, friend, if that's your experience today, then I think you can be encouraged by remembering that your Lord experienced the very same kind of misunderstanding and hatred during his life and during his ministry. So he empathizes and sympathizes with us. He often faced opposition as he proclaimed the truth of the gospel. And so you and I must be equipped with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, meaning that we know, we understand, and we apply the Scripture. And here in the context of 1 John, we must fully embrace that we are sons and daughters in God's family. We've been adopted by Him. And understanding that truth will help us to stand firm in Christ even in the face of hatred and misunderstanding and even persecution. Thanks, Tom. And friend, are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church, where Tom serves as pastor, is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas Distance location. Join Pastor Tom as he hosts the Master's Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, coming up March 23rd through the 26th, 2023, at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music